The following podcast focuses on the Catholic Church and discusses sensitive content in relation to religion and politics. It contains discussions of abuse, sexism, homophobia and sexual assault. This series has been made in collaboration with the Blue and Yellow blog of the European Students Association. Together, Lucrezia and Victoria present the second episode in this series, The Red Line. You are listening to the Maastricht Diplomat. And I'm Victoria Alexander. And And welcome to this episode of The Red Line. This is the second episode of a series where I, and together with Victoria, discuss the red line of power and authority that runs beneath and perpetrates instances of abuse within the institution of the Catholic Church. If you didn't, go check out our first episode on the Masic Diplomat and the article published in the Blue and Yellow blog of ECA. We hope that you will enjoy today's discussion. In the previous episode, we gave a general introduction to the Catholic Church, its history, its structure, its relationship between church and state, as well as the dogma by the church which perpetuates this culture of power and authority. In today's episode, we're going to take a deeper dive into the institutional power of the church so that we can lead up to our discussion about abuse, particularly sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. So, by taking a closer look at the institutional power of the church, and as we explained in the previous episode, The resolution of the so-called Roman question was of particular importance of the Church, especially in the international sphere. Since medieval times, the Holy See had always entered into international relations, and the question of its legal status as a non-state religious organization rarely arose. Nevertheless, with the loss of its territorial basis, as we already explained, its legal status in the international framework became more controversial. Therefore, by way of the Lateran Treaty, the Kingdom of Italy recognized Interalia, Vatican City, as an independent state under the sovereignty of the Holy See. This was done in order to guarantee indisputable and visible independence and sovereignty of the Holy See and to ensure recognition of the, of the entity as a whole. However, a distinction existed and will always exist between the Holy See and the state of Vatican City. As it has already been mentioned in the previous episode, the Holy See is based on spiritual sovereignty, while Vatican City, or the state of Vatican City, is granted on territorial sovereignty. And whilst being both headed by the Supreme Pontiff or the Pope, and being seen as a singular union for most of the purposes, in the international sphere, they are considered as two entities enjoying completely different international legal statuses. Since this is going to be the center of our discussion today in this second episode, I want to ask you, Victoria, how is the distinction between the Holy See and the state of Vatican City reflected in the international framework? The Vatican City and the Holy See are these kind of strange entities that don't function entirely as a state within the international framework, but also aren't non-states entirely. I mean, the Vatican and the Holy See are somewhat separate in this regard. So the Vatican City is actually viewed from the international perspective as a state. We have four formal soft requirements for statehood as provided in the Montevideo Convention, and that is a permanent population, a defined territory, a settled government, and the ability to enter in relations with other states. And so we can see from the Vatican City perspective that it does fulfill these four criteria. As for the Holy See, of course, 
the Holy See does not fulfill these criteria. Mm -hmm. However, since a lot of international legal theory that we have currently poses that states are the primary actors of international law, this becomes an issue if the Holy See wants to engage in relations with other states. And since the Holy See does not fulfill the aforementioned criteria, a lot of people argue that any interstate relations with the Holy See are not legitimized because it is not a state. Yeah, definitely. I, I find it really interesting this insight into, well, we know that a state is the most powerful entity within the international community. However, we see that the policy has a lot of power in, yeah. uh, in the international framework. So how? If, as you said, it does not fulfill this criteria, well, the Vatican State, the, the state of Vatican City does fulfill the criteria, but doesn't have uh, that much prominent role in the international framework. And indeed, I, I find this insight super interesting because we know, as you said, the states are the most prominent figures in the international framework, you know, like to, to make a difference. However, the Holy See has a lot of power. However, we still have this problem on whether it does qualify or not as a state. While on the contrary, we have the state of Vatican City, which formally completely fulfills the criteria of statehood, however, does not have that greater of impact as the Holy See. That, that's why I want to ask you, if the Holy See does not comply with the Montevideo Convention, with the criteria of statehood set out in the convention, how is its role within the international framework then justified? Yeah, so to that I have two points. The first kind of leads into the second. So first of all, the convention that we mentioned and the requirements for statehood it is mostly just a formal theory of statehood. It's not, this isn't necessarily hard law that we can use to define absolutely this is a state. And, you know, what we see then is that whether or not the international community decides to interact with the Holy See becomes a lot more relevant than this convention. But I would secondly like to point out that this idea that states are the primary actors in international law um, this is not necessarily a, a theory that has gone uncontested, especially as time has progressed. Yeah. Because we see that NGOs, IGOs, have plenty of influence and relationships on the international stage. So there's no reason why the Holy See shouldn't necessarily have some sort of standing there either, especially considering the way that states do choose to interact with it. It's really important to point out the fact that there is a debate on this. So it's not just straightforward. It's not that you have some requirements, you fulfill them, and that's it. And we can see that in this situation. Yeah, so I think that what that brings us to next is asking, okay, so if the Holy See isn't a state, how can it be identified? So, as we said, it cannot be qualified as a state. And therefore, it, it is better described as a sui generis, known state actor, which means that the authority of the Holy See is not based on territorial sovereignty, but on spiritual sovereignty. Well, we see that, for example, for the state of Vatican City, it's quite the opposite. So the sovereignty is based on territoriality and not on spirituality. What I take away from that is the fact that it's not a state, but it still carries a lot of institutional weight behind it, particularly on the international stage. It becomes rather difficult to pierce through these institutional and spiritual walls of the church, metaphorically speaking, in order to hold the clergy, for example, externally accountable. Definitely. And that's why it's really important to discuss it, in particular for the whole aim of our project of the series of episodes, because 
The thing that we want to do is to tackle the problem of sexual abuse. In order to do that, and in order to understand the, the power that the church actually has at the European, international, national level, we have to understand the status of the Holy See of the church. We have to understand the, the status of the church and of the Holy See within the whole community. We'll talk more about this in later episodes. But I think that the importance of this element for our discussion going forward is that whenever we see instances of sexual abuse running rampant within the church and church leaders not being held accountable, there is this distinction, for example, between canon law and the law of the states in which these abuses are occurring, for example. And what we see then is that this makes it incredibly difficult for any sort of external authority to come in and hold people accountable or try to remove abusive leaders from their positions of power, it becomes very difficult, like I said before, to pierce that wall. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's also related to what we said in the previous episode about this conflict between positive law and natural law. And legislation should be based on the theory of positive law. We still have a lot of influence from religion. Yeah. And for me, it's crazy the fact that the Holocene, which is a spiritual entity has that much power in the decision-making process at the European, international, national level. Yeah, absolutely. So if we give a couple of examples about points of tension that the church has had, for example, if we look at it from the European Union level, the example that comes to mind is how the church has had an issue with the European Union's funding of stem cell research, as well as their opposition to a report that resulted in increased funding for abortions within the EU. The Catholic Church obviously had a lot to say about that and they were not happy about it. But how does this relationship between the Holy See and the Vatican City differ in the international context? Yeah, that's really important to define because they, they have completely different international relations. Because while the state of Vatican City is more interested in agreements that would favor the practical interests of the state, the Holy See is more involved in human rights and religious matters. And this division between the two explains the involvement of the Holy See in different human rights organizations, such as the United Nations and the Council of Europe. Mm -hmm. For example, as for what concerns the United Nations, the Holy See is granted permanent observer status. And even though it is not eligible for full membership in the General Assembly of the United Nations, it has substantial power in the work of the organization. Same thing applies for the Council of Europe. So the Holy See is given only observer status in the Council of Europe and full membership is precluded to the Holy See because of its lack of democracy and human rights protection. Okay, that's really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about its role within the UN specifically? So, first of all, there is a lot of academic papers in, in this matter. One thing that I want to point out, and maybe we can discuss more about that, is is the Holy See actually a state or a religion? Because, for example, the Holy See has itself stated its mission at the UN is of a religious and moral character. So how, how do you make coincide the two? Are you acting as a state, as an organization, or are you acting as a religion within the United Nations? I think this is really important to consider whenever we're talking about this. And before I said that the role of the Holy See within the United Nations is not as a full member 
because it's not a state, as you also said previously. So uh, I'm going to tell you what, what are the privileges of the Holy See within the United Nations as a non-member state permanent observer. First of all, the Holy See has the ability to sign and ratify UN-sponsored treaties. Then it has the ability to participate in world conferences with full voting rights. It has the possibility to take part in discussions and decisions in the General Assembly and the possibility to participate in various UN agencies, commissions, and committees. These elements are really important. So, for example, in regards to the, the ability to sign and ratify international treaties, although the OEC has this possibility, it has failed to, to establish its commitment in the protection of human rights. We can see that the Holy See has neglected to ratify the International Convenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the International Convenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Well, let's precise the fact that the first two are extremely important in the international community. The third one is extremely important whenever we're discussing about women's rights. We can see further, for example, in the participation of the Holy See in the World Conferences, that the Holy See multiple times has tried to join forces with groups of conservative and right-wing orientation in order to intervene and obstruct reforms that are needed to, to further women's sexual reproductive health and rights. Furthermore, as for what concerns the participation of the Holy See in the General Assembly, the Archbishop Renato Martino said, and I quote, that the Holy See views its purpose at the UN as bringing to the attention of the word teaching of the church. And this goes back to what we said before. Is the Holy See a state or is the Holy See a religion? What's its actual role within the United Nations, within the international framework in general? I think it's an interesting question to look at the role that religion will play in the international sphere. However, we can also see that there are plenty of states who function as both. We have theocracies in the world. And I think that functionally we could look at the Holy See much in the same light, because it is quite blatant, the quote that you just provided from, you know, from the Archbishop about the role of the church in the UN to bring light to the teachings of the gospel. But if you look at, for example, the state of Iran, which is a theocracy as well, and a full member state of the UN. So I think that whenever we're addressing the question of whether the Holy See functions as more as a state or more as a religion, I think it's probably the most accurate to blend the two. Definitely, yeah. And I think that in this particular regard, within the European Union, it's kind of the same. In the way that it's able to utilize its power is a bit similar, because we've already seen how it's able to wield its influence in order to make its protestations known about European Union legislation, European Union funding, for example, with the stem cell research or abortion or et cetera, et cetera. But how do you think that this whole conversation that we had today and on the last episode connects to the final aim of our project, so sexual abuse perpetrated by the church? Yeah, so really the whole idea behind this is to analyze the role that the church has both in the community and within an institutional framework, whether that be international, national, or European, in order to really understand why this happens and what structures there are in place to keep it accountable, and what the challenges for accountability may be. So for example, in the next episode, we're going to have a discussion about, okay, why do we see this issue of sexual abuse running rampant within the Catholic Church? 
And then in the final episode, we are going to talk about, as alluded to previously, this distinction between canon law and the laws of a state, which makes holding abusers accountable a lot more difficult. So today, whenever we're talking about institutional power, we've laid the groundwork a little bit for the structural obstacles which may arise in holding abusers accountable. Be sure to check out Lucrezia's accompanying articles for this episode of The Red Line and the previous one, available now on the blue and yellow blog of the ECA. So it's everything for now. We really enjoyed recording this episode and we hope you did as well listening to it. And stay tuned for the next episode of The Red Line. This episode was written and hosted by Victoria and Lucrezia. Thank you to the Blue and Yellow blog of the ECA for collaborating on this project. The music was created by Stone Ocean and the executive producer was Rue. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music. You've been listening to the Maastricht Diplomat.